Well, this morning I am continuing in a sermon series that I have called Practical Christianity, uh, the Practical Gospel. Um, my goal for this series has been to, I guess, do a thought exercise of, of trying to do what Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, where he told the Philippians, Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And I read this, and I see this as him saying, you know, you don't work for your salvation because we are saved by the grace of God, by an undeserved gift, not by anything we've done. But now that you are right with God, now that you're saved, work out the implications of the gospel into every area of your life. And what, is it, what difference does it make that you've been saved by the gospel to your love life, to parenting and family, to work life, to your relationship with money, to your personal growth? Those have been what we've looked at the last five weeks Trying to think through, okay, what difference does the gospel make in every aspect of our life? And the summary statement I've been using for the gospel is this. We are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace. Learning to live as new creations according to God's will. Trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. And I structured this to show the past, present, and future dynamic of the gospel Uh, That we have been saved and justified by grace. We are learning to live in the present as new creations according to God's will. And we are trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. And so I use that to kind of structure where I go and thinking through the implications of the gospel for every area of our life. And so this morning, it's going to be about the gospel and community. And by community, I mean your friends or your church, those to whom you're not related by blood, who you don't work with, but those who you'd call either friends or your church community. So what are the implications of the gospel for those relationships in your life? So beginning with the past dimension, we are sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. If this phrase means nothing to you, let me unpack this quickly. Uh, It means that even though God created us to enjoy a relationship with him by our sin and rebellion, we've all been separated from that holy God. We're all deserving of eternal separation from God. But God did not leave us alone in our sin, but he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus lived the perfect life we could not live. And then he sacrificed himself on the cross in our place, taking the punishment we deserved. Rose again from the dead to conquer sin and death. Made a way for us to be right again with God. And so those who turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus are saved from their sins. Saved from hell. Saved from eternal separation from God. And it's by grace A gift of God, not by works, not by anything that we've done to deserve it. No one on their own merit, on their own good works, can ever make themselves right with God. As Paul put it in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. We're saved and justified, which is a legal term, meaning you're declared not guilty. That even though before a holy God you stand guilty by your sin, he has declared you not guilty, because all of your sin has been put on Jesus. So if nothing else, please understand that. That is the heart of the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus. We are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace. So what does that mean for our friendships and our community? First and foremost, it means this. We're careful about the friends we choose and the influence we allow them to have over us. So if the truth is that we're sinners saved by grace, that first part that we're sinners means that we have come to terms with the fact that we're not perfect the way we are. Not every desire of our heart is a good desire. That we are easily deceived. That we're easily led astray. We're sinners in need of a Savior. We're sinners in need of grace. And so if that's true about us, then we need to be careful 
about the friends that we choose, the community that we involve ourselves in, the influence we allow them to have over us. As it says in Proverbs 12, 26, a righteous man is cautious in friendship, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Depending on how old you are, you can look back over your life and think about some of the friends that you've had who might have fit in those one of two categories. Some of you may have had friends who led you astray. You look back on the relationships that you had or the communities that you were involved in maybe who kind of led you down a path that wound up leading to more destruction in life and health. And maybe you've also had other friends in your life who you look back and you say, those are the friends who have truly encouraged me, lifted me up, and led me closer to the man, to the woman that I want to be, to the one that God's created me to be. A righteous man is cautious in friendship, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. If it's true that we are sinners saved by grace, then we better be cautious about the friends that we choose, the community that we keep. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? He uses the metaphor of oxen and a yoke that keeps those oxen together going in the same direction. And he says if you're yoking yourself together with someone who's pulling in a different direction, it's not going to go well. So again, what are the implications of the gospel for the community that you keep, the friends that you have? If you are a sinner saved by grace, then recognize that you are vulnerable to deception. You're vulnerable to being led astray. Every desire of your heart is not a good one. And sometimes the company you keep can lead you to destruction. And so can I encourage you today then to examine the company you keep, to examine the friends that you are allowing to influence your life. Be careful that your friends are not fitting into that category of those who are leading you astray. Second implication of the gospel is this, that we can be honest with each other knowing that our self-worth doesn't come from our performance or the evaluation of others. Honesty. The gospel frees us up to be honest because, again, we're saved by grace, not by works, not by anything we've done, not by how perfect we are. If we know that, if we know that it's only by his grace that we're saved, that we're so full of evil and wickedness that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us, then that frees us up to not have to pretend to be someone that we're not, not to pretend to be someone that's better than we are. Think of 1 John 1, 6 through 10. If we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. In this passage, he says, those who walk in darkness, hiding the truth about themselves, break fellowship with God and with each other. But when we walk in the light, in honesty, in confession, in being open about who we are, then he says, Jesus forgives our sin and we have fellowship with one another because we're not walking in darkness, we're not hiding, we're not pretending that we're someone we're not. If the gospel is that we are sinners saved by grace, then we know we don't have to pretend to be someone better than we are. 
We can be honest because we know that God knows everything and even more than we know about ourselves. He knows all the dirt and he's forgiven it. Andrew Peterson is a Christian singer-songwriter. He put it this way. It's the great confounding reversal of the gospel of Jesus. If the word that we preach is one of attainable perfection, of law, of justification by works, then when we fail, our testimony fails with it. But if we preach our deep brokenness and Christ's deeper healing, if we preach our inability to take a single breath but for God's grace, then our weakness exalts him, and we're functioning as we were meant to since the foundation of the world. Let you read that one more time while I take some water. Right? I mean, the world is waiting for people who call themselves Christians to prove themselves to be hypocrites, to fall. But if the gospel we're preaching is not one that we're better than other people, but that we're sinners saved by grace, then even when we fall and we turn back to God, all it does is just showcase his grace, how amazing God is. And so again, the gospel frees us up to be honest in our friendships, to be honest about ourselves. Because we're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by our reputation. We're saved by his grace. I don't know if you've been on our website (coughs) recently, but this is uh, my biography, if you go to the About Us section. It says this, Eric Stillman began in August of 2006 as the third pastor in the history of New Life. He's a graduate at the University of Connecticut, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Eric is a lifelong resident of the area, having grown up in South Windsor, having previously lived in Manchester for many years. He and his wife, Michelle, the proud parents of four boys, Ryan, Will, Nate, and Jordan. Oops, sorry, thank you. Uh, Eric previously worked as the youth pastor of New Life from 1998 to 2002, and an associate pastor of Wittenberry Church in Bloomfield from 2004 to 2005. He and his wife, Michelle, are the proud parents of four boys, Ryan, Will, Nate, and Jordan, and have been foster parents to many other children through the years. Uh, Five or so years ago, I had changed the bio on, our web, on, on the website, and after just reflecting on this truth about the honesty of who I am and who God is, and I had changed it to this. It said, Eric has been the pastor of New Life since August 2006. He has a hard time planning ahead. He hates confrontation. He struggles in his prayer life. He enjoys doing nothing. He tends to be self-centered, coasts on talent, avoids difficult people, rarely takes initiative, and is often irresponsible. He has a hard time finishing things, remembering things, or staying on task. He is also a fan of the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> but in spite of all of this, God has never rejected Eric, but instead has called him to be the pastor of New Life in order to magnify the amazing grace of God and to demonstrate to all that Jesus alone deserves the glory. <laughs> I eventually changed it back, but for a season, that's what it read on our website. And... Uh, it came after years of just looking myself in the face and realizing, you know, in the mirror, basically, and realizing just seriously, it's all the grace of God, isn't it? It's all God's grace. It's never been about me, my works, anything like that. It's always been about his grace. And I could go on. That's just the short, you know, that's the brief version about myself. I could go on if you want. But again, That's the truth. We can be honest about ourselves because it's never been about us. It's been about his grace. He's the one who deserves the glory. I'm no better than anyone else. I'm a sinner saved by grace that God has called to serve him in this way. So what are the implications of the gospel that we're sinners saved and justified by grace? It means that because we know we're sinners, we're careful about the friends we choose. 
and the influence we allow them to have over us. We can be honest with each other, knowing that our self-worth doesn't come from our performance or others' evaluation of us. And then thirdly, we're patient with our friends' imperfections, knowing that we are sinners in need of grace as well. Let me say that one more time. We are patient. We are patient with our friends' imperfections, knowing that we are sinners in need of grace as well. In Ephesians 4, 2 through 3, Paul says this, be completely, completely, that's completely, humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. A lot of good words in there. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Again, if you have missed the reality that you are a sinner saved by grace, if somehow you think you're a Christian because you're better than other people, you're smarter than other people, you're more holy than other people, then you're going to have a hard time being patient with others who don't quite measure up to your standard. But if you recognize that you are a sinner saved by grace and that if it were not for his grace, his sacrifice, you'd be lost and that every day he shows you mercy and grace more than you deserve, then how does that affect the way you treat each other? You recognize that we're all people in process. We're all in need of patience and grace. And our community, our friendships, that's the place where we can put that into practice, being patient with one another, bearing with one another in love, so that we can build the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We're sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. Let's move on to the second part. Learning to live as new creations according to God's will. A couple things I want to share from this. Because again, it's not just that we're saved and that's it, end of the story. Now, his Holy Spirit is in us. We've been adopted as children of God and now he's transforming us. Freeing us from the power of sin in our lives. Transforming us to be more and more like Christ. As long as you're here, he's going to keep working on you and sanctifying you and making you more like Jesus. So, What are the implications then for our community? First is this, that we serve and love each other as members of God's family. This group of people that are sitting here today, it's not just a a collection of like-minded individuals, not just a bunch of people who want to do good in the world. It's, it's It's a family. It's a big adopted family that when you come to faith in Christ, you are adopted as a child of the Heavenly Father, and that means you've got brothers and sisters in here. Look around the room. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. Adopted family of God. 1 John 4, 9 through 12 tells us what that means and how we're to treat each other. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It's very simple, isn't it? He boils it down to this. God demonstrated his love for us by sending his son Jesus to die in our place. And now as he's loved us, you are to love one another. Sacrificially. Giving of your time, your efforts, your energy, your possessions, to care for those in need, to love each other. That this family would be a place where love is great. 
that people would see the church and say, look how they love each other. It's unlike any other community in this world. I mean, I know, again, I've said that, that as a church, you need to do things like marketing and have websites and put things out there to the public and all of that stuff, you know? But my heart is that we would be known for our love, right? That would be the brand, right? It's just that we would love each other. That people would walk in and feel loved. People would become a part of a church and feel loved and know that whatever they're going through, they are being prayed for, cared for, needs are being met. Challenged to become the men and women God has called them to be. That the church would just be known for love. Matthew 20, 25 to 28, Jesus called his disciples together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus again says that's what love looks like. It doesn't look like the world the world's definition of love. It means to serve. It means to take the lowest place, to be a slave to other people, to be willing to lower yourself in order to lift others up. Just as Jesus was willing to give up the comfort of heaven to come down and serve and die on a cross for us. That's what it means to live as a new creation according to God's will in the community that he's brought you into is to learn to love and to serve each other. The second thing is this. We cultivate friendships that will challenge each other to be like Jesus. It's a very important distinction that I want to make here. There's a a passage in John chapter 8 where the Pharisees bring before Jesus this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And they are basically using her as a trap. They throw her before Jesus and say, Jesus, the law of Moses commands that we stone such a woman. What do you say? They think it's a big gotcha here, right? Because Jesus, as they see it, has two options. Either he upholds the law of Moses and has her stoned, and in the process, this whole crowd that's been like gathering to him of all these misfits and 'er ne'er-do-wells, they're going to scatter because here's Jesus stoning this woman. But if he says, no, 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 don't stone her, let her go, then he's not upholding the law of Moses. And he's going to alienate all the people who think he's a prophet who follows God. And so Jesus instead bends down and writes in the dirt. And then in John 8, 10 through 11, he straightens up. Well, he's first, I'm sorry. First, he says to those who are gathered, let he who is without sin cast the first stone at her. And one by one, they all leave. And then Jesus straightens up and he asks the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Look at the words that he says to her. And I look at that and I say, that is a great picture of what I'm talking about here when I talk about love, when I talk about how we're a part of a community where we're challenging each other to be like Jesus. Because you think about a couple alternatives when it comes to churches and communities. There's some communities where the first sentence there, I don't condemn you, is it, right? There are some churches that just preach a message that's this. Everyone is welcome here. Period, full stop, end of sermon. And they're doing all they can to promote that message. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, you are welcome here. 
and there's no, nothing after that. There's another kind of church that preaches the second message. Go now and leave your life of sin, and then I won't condemn you, right? It starts with, get your act together, and then you're welcome here. But look at how Jesus did it. I don't condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So it starts with the message that everyone is welcome here. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you've been through, what's going on in your life. Every single human being is welcome in this place. But it doesn't stop there. And then it is, now go and leave your life of sin. You are going to be challenged and encouraged to be like Jesus. To turn from anything that does not honor him, anything that is sinful, anything that's destructive to you, to put that aside to turn in faith to follow Jesus. You are not condemned. You are welcome here. Now go and leave your life of sin. I, I, I look at how Jesus treated that woman caught in the act of adultery, and I see in that a great picture of what it means to be a loving church. It doesn't just mean everyone's welcome as they are and can stay as they are. That's not love, to allow people to just stay in their sin. It's welcoming everyone as they are and then encouraging and challenging them to be the men and women God has called them to be, to be like Jesus. And that happens through Ephesians 4.15, as Paul said, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. It's a great phrase, speaking the truth in love. That's what we need in order to grow up, in order to grow up and be like Christ. People who will speak the truth in love to us, remind us of who God is, the promises of God, the character of God, remind us of who he's called us to be, what is true, what is false, the sin that we need to repent of, the calling on our lives. Speak the truth in love to each other. That's what we need. A community of friends who will speak the truth in love to each other. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You need friends who can encourage you because life is hard, right? You need a community of friends who can encourage you with the truth of who God is. Speak to you words of hope because life is hard. You also need friends who will challenge you when you are in sin, when you're acting in ways that are not right with God. You need friends who will speak the truth in love to each other. Every single one of you has a blind spot, if not more. Things about yourself that you can't even see, but others see about you. And sometimes they talk about it behind your back. And that's not the way it's meant to be. It's meant to be that we, you friends would speak the truth in love to you would come to you and say, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I've noticed this about how you speak to your wife. I've noticed this about how you spend your time. I've noticed this about your work ethic. Whatever it may be, people who are willing to speak the truth and love to you, to point out to things that you might not be aware of, to help refine you, grow you, make you more like Christ. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 and 17, it says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. 
That's what we're talking about. What are the implications of the gospel for community? It's that you need a community of friends who are willing to speak the truth and love to you. Not just stop at the, hey, everyone's welcome here. Not just, or especially don't give you that condemning legalistic mindset. If you've got to pull yourself together and then you're welcome here. No, you are welcome as you are. And I'm going to help you become the man God has called you to be. I'm going to help you become the woman that God has created you to be. I'm going to speak the truth and love to you. So that we can all grow up into him who is the head. One of my favorite quotes on friendship comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And he's reflecting in this passage on two of his friendships, uh, a man named Charles and a man named Ronald, who is also known as J.R.R. Tolkien. And he said this, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. They can then say, as the blessed souls say in Dante, here comes one who will augment our loves. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each has of God. For every soul seeing him in their own, her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, 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 to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we all have. If you couldn't quite follow his logic there, he was talking about how different friends bring out different aspects of your character, right? That's how if you're married and then your wife sees you around your guy friends and she's like, who are you? I don't even know who you are because they bring out a different aspect of your character that she doesn't, right? And that's the way it is with friendships, that different people bring out different aspects of who you are. And he said, therefore, when Charles died, it's like he lost part of Ronald because there were aspects that only Charles could bring out of Ronald. And he says that that's the same way it is with God, that on our own we see through our lens part of who God is. But as we gather together with each other, as we listen to each other, we see God more fully as each person shares what they see from their perspective of who God is and what they've been through and how that's helped them to understand more about God. It's a beautiful picture of community and the importance of friendship and not just seeing it, you know, I could just worship God on my own at home, right? But that we need each other. We need each other's perspective and experience on God so that we might again grow up and know him better. So moving on to the third part, we are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. This life is not all there is. This community is not all there is. That one day we will be with God forever in perfect community. And so let me just say a few things. First is this. We know that the only perfect church, the only perfect community, will be in heaven. So we love and serve our imperfect church to the glory of God. I've been with this church now, as you, if you did the math, for 16 years as the senior pastor. I haven't had the privilege of, of checking out other churches on Sundays. Some of you have. 
And if you're here, that means you probably haven't yet found the perfect church, right? Because if you did, you probably would be attending there. There is no perfect church, is there? Some of you have lived long enough and been around long enough to know there's just no perfect church. And so as long as God has you here, then serve the imperfect church you find yourself in. Love the imperfect community of, and family that you find yourself in. One day, this will be the picture in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and wearing, holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a lot of imagery and metaphors there, but the point is that you have this great community of people from every tribe, nation, gathered together worshiping God, and that's what we will have for eternity. In the meantime, until that day comes, you're stuck with us, right? In the meantime, you're stuck with this imperfect community. So love the people that God has placed you with to the best of your ability. Serve them in a way that brings honor to him, that helps us become more and more a picture of, an image of that heavenly community. And secondly is this, we put our hope in the ultimate friend, Jesus. Again, I know some of you look at your lives and you're sad because you don't have that friend or that community. Some of you have been blessed by having friends who you just feel are closer than a brother, closer than a sister. And some of you feel lonely, I'm sure. Some of you feel like you just don't have that kind of friendship, that kind of community where you have people who love you and know you and speak the truth and love to you and encourage you and all of that. But in Jesus, you have the friend above all friends. You have the one who is always there, who will never leave you or forsake you, who is always speaking the truth and love to you. And so even if you do not have those friends, you have Jesus. As he said in John 15, 12 through 17, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Please don't lose the, how incredible that is, that the God of the universe calls you his friend. This is not, he says, it's not a master-servant relationship. I've called you my friend. Don't lose the, just the majesty of that, that kind of intimacy that you can have with the God of the universe. So thank God this life is not all there is. That that perfect community that we've been longing for will be ours forever. That the perfect friend that we wish we had is ours forever. And lastly, I'll say this. We share the gospel with our friends in hopes that they will be with us for eternity. Because I recognize that not every friend you have, not every person in your community knows Jesus. And so in the end, if this life is not all there is, if there is life eternal, then the most important thing you can do for your friends is to share the good news of Jesus with them to let them know that there is a way to be right with God, a way to have death not be the end, but to live forever with God. After I say the benediction, or after I close this sermon, I want to just make sure we do spend some time putting this into practice, praying for our friends who don't know Jesus. So the gospel has many implications for every area of our life. And when it comes to your friendships and your community, 
Can I encourage you that just as he's loved and served you, that he calls you to love and serve each other and that the gospel frees us up to be honest with each other. We don't need to hide. We don't need to pretend to be someone we're not. We know it's always been by grace that we're saved. We can be honest with each other. We can be patient with each other just as he's been patient with us. We can love and serve each other as he's loved and served us. Can I encourage you, put your hope in Jesus and then go and love and serve each other in this church that he's brought you to. If this is the church that he's called you to, then love and serve each other in a way that brings him glory. Why don't we spend some time just between you and the Lord while the worship team comes up and just lift up to the Lord anyone who is on your heart who doesn't know Jesus, any friends that you have, anyone in your community who doesn't know him. And let's just spend some time in prayer crying out to God for their salvation. Lord, you tell us in your word that your will is that no one would perish. That everyone would come to repentance and faith in you. And so these names that we have lifted up to you, Lord, we pray that you would save them, that you would reveal yourself to them, even today, Lord, that you would turn them from sin to faith in you. Lord, that you would encourage us, give us courage to share the gospel, to share the good news with those in our life who don't know you, to point them to you, Lord. We thank you that you have conquered sin and death. We thank you that we will have your perfect friendship and community for all eternity. In the meantime, Lord, we pray that you would help us to love each other as you have loved us, to bring you glory in this church, that we would be known by our love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.